the National Archives podcast series, Coronations, presented by Dr. Adrian Ailes. Right, my, the title of my talk is actually Coronations in the Public Records, 1100 to, to 1953. So when in the spring of 1660, Charles II returned to these shores after a forced exile on the continent, and following a decade in which England had experienced, had, sorry, had experimented with the Republican idea, he immediately set about organizing what was to be, and I quote, the single most expensive and elaborate ceremony of his whole life, his coronation. For at least four, four and a half centuries, this elaborate spectacle, consisting of anointing with holy oil, oath-taking, investiture of certain regalia, including a crown, and communion, had formed the central rite of passage whereby an individual was created king or queen of England. And in 1660, it was imperative that the newly restored Charles should undergo this same ritual. There was, however, a problem. There hadn't been a Westminster coronation since 1626. The last state entry from the Tower of London to Westminster Abbey was in 1604. And there had been no coronation banquet, that's a huge celebratory feast held in nearby Westminster Hall after the coronation, since 1559. And nor did it help that the crown jewels, those gorgeous trappings of an ancient monarchy, had been deliberately melted down, lost or sold during the civil wars and interregnum. So, confronted with nationwide coronation amnesia when preparing for his big day, Charles fell back onto the written records and ordered, and I quote, the records and old formularies should be examined and that the events should follow cl these closely so that the ancient traditions contained therein might add less luster and splendor to the solemnity. Well, certainly he would have consulted the late 14th century Liber Regalis, kept at Westminster Abbey, which still provides the traditional order of service for the coronation. And there's a printed edition, which you see in front of you here in the National Archives Library. The king, or rather his officials, would have also searched through the archives of various government secretariats and departments, such as the Exchequer, Chancery and State Papers Office, are the records which I shall be looking at this afternoon. And here he may well have come across what is now generally considered the oldest reference to an English coronation in the public records, dating back to 1170. Or is it the oldest? The great seals of Henry I, who reigned from 1100 to 1135, depict the king crowned and enthroned, holding a sword in his right hand and an orb in his left. This iconographic pose had been employed by Henry's father and brother, William I and II, on their seals, and is surely reminiscent of the coronation of Harold, as depicted in the Biotapestry, and of the Conqueror, as painted by the mid-13th century chronicler, Matthew Paris. Although by this time the king regularly wore his crown at various festivals, the combination of regalia, that is crown, orb and ceremonial sword, uh, throne and flying, fine flowing drapery, do suggest, uh, at least I think so, a coronation scenario. But to return to 1170 and perhaps surer ground, in other words, in parchment, the pipe rolls or audit of the county sheriff's accounts taken twice yearly at the Exchequer Record that payment was made for robes, the regilding of vessels, and repair of presumably ceremonial swords, uh, of, of repair of swords, presumably the ceremonial swords, used at the coronation of the young king. 
and the king in question was Henry, the son of Henry II, who in the French fashion had been crowned joint king during his father's lifetime to ensure a smooth succession at the father's death. And in fact, Henry, this Henry was uh, in fact to predecease his father. So you might like to think of him as, I don't know, Henry Plantagenet Jr. or Henry II and a half. It's perhaps not surprising to find the first written evidence in the public records of a coronation emanating from the Exchequer. It is, after all, the oldest government department. The first detailed description of an English coronation in the public records is that of the young Queen Eleanor, who in 1236, having married Henry III in Canterbury Cathedral, was then crowned in the old Westminster Abbey. Again, the records can be found amongst the Exchequer papers, in the Red Book of the Exchequer, to be exact. Its appearance there is due to the fact that in 1236, a dispute arose between the Earl of Chester and Huntington and the Earl Warren over who, on this occasion, should carry Kurtana, one of the ceremonial swords. And the king had to intervene, and it was clearly felt that in order for such arguments not to reoccur, the decision should be recorded for posterity. Nor was it to be the last time that such a dispute arose over who should do what at a coronation, but more of that anon. A very important set of exchequer documents that throws much light on the practical side of events the multifarious accounts rendered to the Exchequer by officers and clerks covering a variety of royal and government activities. Many of these records have been grouped together under the catch-all heading, Various Accounts, now in the record class uh, E101. They date from the reign of Henry II to that of George III, and have been usefully subdivided and catalogued in a published list and index volume. Here we find in the section for the royal household and the great and privy wardrobes, relevant coronation materials such as jewels, plate, and livery, details of building preparations for several medieval and early modern coronations can be found in the works section. One document, however, that's not listed in that publication, though it is included in our online catalogue, is that relating to the elaborate coronation in 1308 of Edward II and his French wife, Queen Isabella, I don't think I really ought to admit this, but if you've seen Braveheart, she's the, she's the queen in, in Braveheart. And these are in E101 slash 468.21. This account book of the Clerk of Works somehow ended up in private hands, but it was bought in 1956 by the Public Record Office, predecessor to the National Archives, with, with financial support from the Pilgrims Trust. It details, for example, the 500-foot-long temporary hall constructed especially for the coronation. Also a raised platform in Westminster Abbey, it was at least 13 feet high, on which were placed the thrones of the new king and queen. Also 40 new ovens for the banquet, the coronation banquet, and a fountain flowing with red and white wine. It all sounds terribly grand, but according to Edward's latest biographer, the coronation, and I quote, began with splendid intentions, but ended in discord and scandal not the last of those to do so. Loose warrants in Exchequer Series E101 record payments of liveries for services rendered at the coronation of Elizabeth I in 1559, including, and these, the, these are named, a rare appearance of uh, named ladies, the Queen's Maids of Honour, uh, Children of the Leash. Anybody, any idea what the Children of the Leash might be? 
perhaps something to do with looking after hunting dogs, I'm not sure. Um, but also they record the joiners and plumbers, and not least the Bishop of Carlisle, whose Warren states should be paid well since he doth crown the Queen's Highness. And you can see that, those last two lines on the document. He was the only one of Mary's Catholic hierarchy who did not refuse to crown the Protestant Queen, but even he would not accede to Elizabeth's wishes to omit the elevation of the host at the communion. The various accounts of the Exchequer also shed valuable light on coronation, crowns and regalia. The indented list of plates stolen from the wardrobe in 1303 is headed with the, quote, great crown which the king used on the day of his coronation, enriched with, enriched with precious gems, ballast rubies and emeralds. More coronation regalia can be found in the bound Exchequer Treasury of Receipt books in E36. The inventory of the regalia and jewels of Henry VI is currently on display in the Keeper's Gallery downstairs. You can see the original downstairs. This and other lists of coronation jewels are usefully transcribed in Francis Palgrave's Ancient Calendars of the Exchequer, copies of which are in the map room and library. Uh, perhaps I should add that Jenny Stratford's new book on the inventory of Richard II in the introduction has some very good pages on coronation regalia and jewels of the uh, 14th century. <clears throat> a related set of records are the declared accounts in E351, again the Exchequer, uh, that date from the early Tudor period. Here can be found the accounts of Lawrence Bradshaw, surveyor of the works from 1547 to 1560. And they detail, for example, the dismantling of the law courts in Westminster Hall in readiness for Elizabeth I's coronation feast and their reconstruction afterwards. Sometimes we forget that all this preparation has to be done to prepare Westminster Abbey and prepare Westminster Hall, but after the event, it all has to be put back again as well, and that all needs to be paid for. When I mentioned the four law courts, those in Westminster Hall, uh, today part of the, the present Palace of Westminster, that's the Chancery, Exchequer, King's Bench and Common Pleas, which met in the four corners of that, of that particular hall. And the coronations of Charles I, Queen Anne, and George I can also be found in this record series, E351. Warrants for expenditure by the Crown out of the Exchequer are found in E404, with details of what was actually paid out in the issue rolls in E403. For example, a warrant for June 1461 makes available the enormous sum of £1,000 for the coronation of Edward IV, who spared no expense when it came to three days of coronation ceremonies and festivities. We often forget that coronations in the Middle Ages uh, would last for not just one day, but for several days, tournaments and so on. So important were the coronation documents in the Exchequer that when in the 1320s Bishop Stapledon, who was then treasurer, calendared them, he gave them a special label, which you can see here on the, on the right so that they could be produced without difficulty and replaced afterwards in their proper position. <clears throat> I should just mention two other important financial institutions before we move on. These are the Audit Office and Treasury. I've already referred to the declared accounts in E351, and duplicates, duplicates of these can be found in the account rules A01 of the Audit Office. Although this office was not set up until 1866, its records date back to the auditors of the imprest. 
who were officers of the Exchequer from the second year of the reign of Elizabeth I. Separate audit office files exist in AO1 and AO3 for the coronations of Elizabeth I, Charles II, William and Mary, Queen Anne, George I, George II and George III, and doubtless records of these and other coronations appear elsewhere in the records of that finance department. The Treasury, as a distinct Department of State with its own set of records, can be traced back to the mid-16th century. It gradually superseded the Exchequer as the mainspring of central government finance, and by the early 18th century had established its primacy over all the other departments. A good place to start, especially for the 20th century when looking for the coronation, is with the online catalogue, which brings up some 125 hits for coronations. But much else can also be discovered in the old published calendars of treasury books, calendars of treasury papers, and calendars of treasury books and papers. And they cover the period from 1556 to 1745. So here, for example, we read that in July 1661, the herald William Dugdale was to be paid 50 pounds for his, and I quote, diligence and ability in searching the documentary evidence and making up the record that was delivered into the chancery touching those claims of noblemen, noblemen wishing to perform certain rites at the service of the coronation of Charles II. Yet another reminder of the crucial role played by the records in the planning and preparation of a coronation. <coughs> well, they say that all human life is in the treasury, and for the later period, this is certainly true for the coronations. Here we find records for the engraving of medals for George III's coronation, free admission for colonial troops to the Wallace Collection and the National Gallery during George V's coronation in 1911, special payments to the unemployed for George VI's coronation in 1937 alongside entertainment expenditure on coronation parties given by cabinet ministers, MPs' expenses, nothing new. And for the coronation of the present Queen, there are treasury files on provision for horses, NHS arrangements, the issue of special saving stamps, disposal of articles used in the coronation, and, I'm particularly glad to note, seating facilities for civil servants. And so it goes on, and doubtless will have to be approved and paid for and recorded by the Treasury at the next coronation, uh, though by the way things are going, I shall be long retired by then, and someone else can have my seat. But let's move away from money and finance and look at the records from that other great government department, the Chancery. This was headed by the Chancellor, initially the King's Chaplain, but later his Principal Secretary and Confidential Advisor. It was he who kept the Great Seal, the key to the Kingdom. Like the older Exchequer, exchequer sorry, like the older, older Exchequer, its records Principally, the great series of chancery rolls date from the 12th century, though only from the closing years of the 12th century. The two most important series are the 17 coronation rolls in C57, dating from 1308, and the 14 bundles of proceedings of the Court of Claims in C195, dating from about six, dating from 1685. The first coronation roll contains the order of service, including the oath, and lists the feudal services performed at the coronation of Edward II in 1308. It does not record the oath as actually taken in French on that occasion. That was officially enrolled elsewhere in chancery, as we shall discover later. Well, 
interestingly, I didn't realize this until I actually looked at the roll itself, um, on, the, on the back of this, on this roll, it's, it's endorsed with a, a, a note in a much later hand that on the 23rd of March, 1685, it was delivered uh, to, the, to James II, the Catholic King, who personally ordered that it be kept amongst the public records in the Tower of London. And doubtless, James II was keen to discover the old pre-Reformation service, and it was among a number of ancient documents, including the Liber Regalis that we saw earlier, examined before that king's crowning. Well, in the end, James II's coronation turned out to be uh, another great British compromise, with the communion omitted from the service and the prayers revised. Though, and I didn't realize this until, uh, until very recently, he had already been anointed and crowned following the Catholic, Catholic rite in a private ceremony in the chapel at Whitehall the previous day. Not all the coronation roles survive, there being none for Edward III, Henry VI, Edward IV, Richard III, Henry VII and VIII, Edward VI, Mary Elizabeth I and Charles I. After that, the only omission is for George III. From the early 17th century, the coronation rolls provide a record of the accession of the sovereign, followed by a proclamation of the coronation and of the peers' attendance, the proceedings of the commissioners of the Court of Claims and their adjudications, a short account of the ceremony with the services performed, and a list of those paying homage during the coronation service. From 1702, the coronation oath sworn by the sovereign has been included as a schedule within the coronation roll. And except in the case of George IV, it carries the sovereign's signature made during the ceremony. The present Queen's signed coronation oath is part two of the 1953 coronation roll. And a copy of this is, as I mentioned earlier, temporarily on display in the Keeper's Gallery downstairs. Also on display downstairs is the original coronation roll of William and Mary. And the, the coronation role for William and Mary is particularly interesting because it notes the presentation of the Bible to the monarch, the first time that this was part of the coronation service. Uh, and the order for that, that particular coronation has provided the model for all subsequent coronations. I've already mentioned the dispute as to who should carry the sword, katana, at the coronation of Queen Eleanor in 1236. This and doubtless other such quarrels led to the formation of a formal court of claims held before each coronation to decide and pronounce upon who should perform certain services on the big day. Uh, this is the court of claims in session in 1901-02 before the coronation of King Edward VII. Um, I can assure you it's not a fancy dress party, but it would be interesting to know if they still actually do dress like that, or perhaps for the next coronation, I don't know. The proceedings of the Court of Claims in C195 include petitions, notes of judgments made by the court, statements of evidence brought forward, minutes, orders and memoranda, and miscellaneous records relating to coronation proceedings. And this is a page from the proceedings of the court held before the coronation of Queen Victoria. The very first formal record of the proceedings and decisions of the Court of Claims, the Processus Factus, are in fact not in C195, but on the 1377 Chancery Close Roll, where they are followed by a description of Richard II's coronation. I'm reminded now that I have Professor Brian Kemp in the audience, who is uh, an expert on Richard II, so I shall be a little bit careful about what I say. 
Anyway, the account here of Richard II's coronation ends with a rather nice note that the original was personally delivered by the steward of England, John of Gaunt, into the chancery to be enrolled. Also on a chancery close roll is a list of the services rendered at the coronation of Richard's great-grandfather, Edward II, along with a schedule containing the oath taken by the new king on that occasion. This official recording of the oath in the opening decade of the 14th century may have been part of an increasingly more complex administration in government wishing to record precedent so as to know what to do in the future. There was also perhaps a growing realisation that such an important event should no longer rely solely on the church and its records. Uh, this was now as much a state occasion as a religious one. Four, moving on, four very important sets of records that appear along with the declared accounts during the Tudors are the state papers and the records of the Privy Council, Lord Chamberlain and Lord Steward. To begin with the state papers, <clears throat> Much of the business formally pertaining to the Chancellor in Chancery came to be executed through the King's Secretary, later known as the Secretary of State. The State Papers, which run into hundreds of volumes, are essentially his working correspondence and papers. For the first time, the public records go behind the scenes, provide an insight into the minds of those making government and making government policy. Ordinary men and women appear and we get detailed descriptions of coronations beginning with that of Anne Boleyn in 1533 and continuing till the series ends in 1782 when a new Department of State was set up, the Home Office. As for Charles II, where we started, the State Papers contain Elias Ashmole's copy of his published account of the 1661 coronation, which he attended as Windsor Herald of Arms. Unfortunately, this work was edited by his superior, Sir Edward Walker, Guard King of Arms, before publication. So the, the, the punch-up that occurred during the coronation feast in Westminster Hall, when the royal footman tried to seize the canopy belonging to the four barons who had held it over the king during his anointing, that was unfortunately cut out of the published version. I wonder if it was an early example of the redaction of records. The State Papers also provide a copy of Charles's proclamation announcing arrangements for what, for what was to prove the last coronation procession from the Tower to Westminster. A particularly fruitful source of evidence lies in the various letters and reports penned by foreign diplomats staying in England, which they then sent back to their masters overseas. 19th and 20th century transcripts of these were deposited in the Public Record Office which used them to produce several excellent calendars, all in translation. These can be found up in the map room in the library. From at least 1547, ambassadors had been given a special place to view the coronation procession and to sit in the abbey to watch the proceedings. Their writings often provide very open and honest accounts of what they saw and heard, noting, for example, the glittering jewels and robes worn by Elizabeth uh, Elizabeth's entourage, entourage as it left the tower on the way to the Abbey, or, or the murmurs of disapproval at Charles I cancelling his state entry. And on a, and on a record-keeping note, the Venetian ambassador reported soon after the accession of James I, and I quote, for the coronation, the heralds, whose office it is to arrange the pageant, are examining precedents, even remote ones. 
Under the reforms of Thomas Cromwell, Henry VIII's secretary, the King's Privy Council emerged as an effective agency of government, a formal arena to advise the sovereign and acquiring administrative, legislative and judicial roles. And from the 1540s, the Privy Council kept its own register, now in PC2. I couldn't actually find a good copy or a good picture of this in, in the records, so I thought we'll make do with this. The only example I could find of record keeping in the Privy Council. You can see just how privy it was, can't you, with the, uh, the secrecy involved. Well, these provide a major source of information for all subsequent coronations. After Henry VIII had died on the 28th of January, 1547, the Privy Council met in early February to discuss the rewriting of the coronation service for his successor, Edward VI. And the council declared that the old observances and ceremonies used at previous coronations were to be reformed so that the ceremonial would not be too wearisome, wearisome for the boy king. And bearing in mind that many of the old laws were now no longer applicable, a reference to the abolition of the, the, abolition of the Pope's authority and the supremacy of the English monarchy. For sure, their decisions are recorded for posterity. You'll find them in the Privy Council registers in PC2. But note that there are discrepancies between what was agreed in council on that day and what actually happened at the coronation itself, a point worth bearing in mind when it comes to looking at the coronation records. Since 1902, the Coronation Committee of the Privy Council has set up a special Coronation Executive Committee under the chairmanship of the Earl Marshal. And its minutes and papers can be found in a very good source in PC 22. Interestingly, bearing in mind precedence and the importance of the records, those for the first executive committee, appointed for the coronation of King Edward VII and Queen Alexandra, seen here, include procedural orders and instructions from the 1831 and 1838 coronations, as well as a review of the expenditure on Queen Victoria's coronation. Now, therefore, a, a very useful reminder that it's, all, it's always worth looking at the records of subsequent coronations, since they might well include accounts of previous coronations. So if you're looking for the, uh, the coronation of George I, look at the records too for George II, George III, and so on, because they may well contain detailed accounts, perhaps even original accounts, of the coronation of George I. Privy Council papers, mainly unbound in PC1, include lots of good material, that's PC1. Those for George I's coronation in 1727 include the order for appointing a committee for the event, an annotated printed programme for the ceremony, seen here. Minutes concerning the throwing of coins to people inside and outside the abbey. Like, that often created quite a riot. Particulars to be provided by the great wardrobe. The refitting of the crown with jewels. A list of previous proclamations for coronations dating back to 1685. And a note that the coronation should be postponed a few days, and we sometimes forget this, owing to high tides at Westminster. There's also a report from the Surveyor General of the Works as to the safety of the scaffolds in the Abbey and Westminster Hall, which were insufficient on the last occasion, an early example of health and safety at work, as well as a memo from the Board of Works providing useful tips for traffic directions and places for setting down, bearing in mind Westminster Council and parking on double yellow lines, that's probably quite an important aspect of the coronation. Another feature of the Privy Council papers for 1727 are the references to musicians. 
this being the first time Handel's four coronation anthems, including his soaring masterpiece, Zadok the Priest, was sung. Twenty laymen and ten children of the Chapel Royal, the Master of Music, and 36 musicians are recorded. We know that by the early 18th century, music was playing a major role in the ceremony, though the first significant details we have of actual music only emerge in descriptions of Edward II's coronation in 1308. Records of the music in 1727 can also be found in the State Paper Office, Lord Chamberlain, Audit Office and Treasury files. So you need to look across a, a series of, of files to find out more about the music, for example, and any, any other aspect normally of the coronations. The Privy Council was, and still is, keen to ensure that no precedency be overlooked. And a note in the same 1727 paper states that the Lords of the Committee for the Coronation have, and I, I quote from the papers, that they have inspected all the proceedings in the council books upon former coronations. Such archive material was also crucial for the coronation of George's great-grandson, George IV, nearly a century later. The unbound papers in PC1 include petitions of Queen Caroline, the estranged wife of George IV, asking for her coronation to be celebrated on the same day as the new king. And she, you probably remember, probably recall, she was famously barred from the abbey. Though I should add that cartoonists were able to enthrone her. And once again, records precedence came to the rescue. The then Prince Regent, having ordered research as early as November 1819, into the question of whether a queen had the right, independent of her husband, to be crowned. Well, searching for precedency was fine, but the records did not always survive, as a paper laid before the Privy Council again in 1727 made clear, and I quote, We have accordingly made diligent search into all the said registers from the reign of King Henry VIII to the present times. But as in the fire of the banqueting house and afterwards of Whitehall, many of the ancient records were either burnt or lost. It also noted important documents had ended up in private hands and urged their lordships to demand them back. There's a fat chance of getting those back. Two further series that throw valuable light on the coronation, again emanating from Tudor times, are those of the Lord Chamberlain and the Lord Steward. It's an example of 19th century Lord Chamberlain there. The Lord Chamberlain, today executive head of the royal household, is responsible, along with the Earl Marshal, for the running of the coronation. Three record series within the Lord Chamberlain's department are especially enlightening. The accounts in LC9, which include receipts and payments of the Master of the Robes, delivery books and accounts of the Jewel Office and the records of the wardrobe. The, hundred, the 150 or so volumes in LC2, relating to special events, including coronations, and consisting of entry books and originals of accounts, bills, correspondence, uh, me orders and memoranda. And finally, the miscellaneous records in LC5. In LC2 alone, we find, amongst other things, a list of necessaries for Henry VIII's coronation, including, and I quote, cotton or soft linen to dry up the oil that the king is anointed with. Also scarlet, red cloth, issued to William Shakespeare and the others of the King's players for royal progress through the City of London before the coronation of James I. A warrant, and I quote, for a chair, that's from this document, for a chair like unto St. Edward's chair, that's the coronation chair, 
to be made for the Queen, namely Mary II, joint sovereign, equal with William III. And also accounts for alterations to be made to the crown jewels for George IV's sumptuous coronation. Amongst the miscellaneous in LC5, we find the wardrobe accounts for Charles II's coronation, which provide a kind of template for how the abbey was to be decked out. And in the same series, we find payments regarding the, the helmet feathers for the king's champion who rode into the coronation feast, more of him later, tapestries for the abbey, and the order of precedence to be observed during the procession through London, which we saw a picture of that at the beginning of this talk. And it's interesting to note that this uh, last document contains a separate index for coronations, just for coronations, presumably for future reference. The other important department of the royal household for coronation records is that of the Lord Steward. Again, I couldn't find a decent picture of the Lord Steward, so you bear with me for this one. If the Lord Chamberlain is upstairs, then the Lord Steward is downstairs. It's even got the board of the green cloth you notice there as well. Anyway, moving on. James II's kitchen books provide a detailed bill of fare for his coronation banquet, including, I quote, petty patties hot and blackbirds and biatilli pie. Any ideas? I don't know. Um, Strange pies. Could this be the first British bake-off? I don't know. Um, but they're all listed there. Well, the probability that all of this, and there's, there's an awful lot there, um, all of this pales, or should I say cools, in comparison to the expense occurred at George IV's heavily OTT coronation, as detailed in the Lord Steward's accounts for 1821. And it was on this occasion, uh, incidentally, that the King's champion, you can see him there right at the front, in armour and feathers in his helmet, the last occasion where he was to ride into the banquet feast in Westminster Hall to fight any rival, he would challenge for any rival uh, who was going to challenge the, the, the new monarch. <clears throat> On that occasion, in, in 1821, the, the, the king's champion, he was met with rapturous applause, which was a pity since his horse had been hired from a circus and automatically went into its circus routine. <laughs> These things happen. A separate central office of the Surveyor of Works, with, it, with its own records, also appears in Tudor Times. The record series Work 36 includes this wonderful drawing of a triumphal arch for the coronation of George II, and you can see the original downstairs in the Keeper's Gallery. It also includes five portfolios of plans and drawings for the coronation of George IV. And this fine engraving of Victoria's coronation depicting the ceremony of homage to the new queen is to be found in work 21. And it all looks, uh, it all looks perfection, doesn't it, in that, in that picture which you see before me. But the event, unfortunately, was not, not rehearsed. Uh, a peer tumbled backwards over his ermine robes after climbing the steps to pay homage to the young queen. His name was singularly appropriate, you probably know. It was Lord Roll. Uh, and all this was after the Archbishop of Canterbury had uh, forced the ring onto the wrong finger of the young queen, and she was not amused to read her diary of the event. Work, that is the, the Ministry of Works, also contains many relevant photographs, starting with the coronation of George V in 1911. In 1953, the Ministry of Works had hoped to take a comprehensive series of photographs showing the Abbey exactly as it had been set out for 
the coronation. They were unable to do so on the day because of rehearsals and unfinished work, nor could they take photographs immediately afterwards because of the piles of rubbish left behind in Westminster Abbey, including miniature gin and brandy bottles where the peeresses had sat and whiskey bottles where the peers had sat. And the next day, the Abbey was open to the public. So by the time the photographs were taken, they no longer provided an exact record of how the Abbey had looked. And they say the camera doesn't lie. Nevertheless, the 1953 works files do contain a superb collection of photographs before during and after the event. Well, further visual material can be found in records of the Copyright Office, admittedly a great deal of commemorative memorabilia and games, but still that's part of, part of the coronation history, whilst the records of the Central Office of Information and Colonial Office provide memorable views of celebrations held throughout the Commonwealth. My final department is the Lord Chancellor's Office, which holds the records of the Crown Office, which prepares formal documents, formal government documents, that is. Files for 1937 include correspondence with the Public Record Office on the physical production and wording of the coronation roll. The title on the first page of the draft had to be swiftly altered from Edward VIII, who, having abdicated, was never crowned, to George VI. And if you notice, just down at the bottom, there's just enough room to squeeze in and Queen Elizabeth, his consort. Files for 1953 discuss the actual wording of the coronation oath. Ireland and India no, lo no longer owing allegiance to the Crown. Uh, they also include a receipt from the Crown Office stating that it had taken safe delivery of the signed oath at 10 past three in the afternoon on the day after the coronation. Uh, the file also, I noticed, Contains, contains a spare unsigned coronation oath on vellum, which it says was produced just in case of any hitches on the day. So it's nothing like being prepared. And please don't feel tempted to sign that unsigned coronation oath, which is in the files. The 1953 coronation was, of course, a vast logistical undertaking. Probably every government department was involved, and the records are spread across several series. I've already mentioned the involvement of the Ministry of Works and the Treasury, seen here. Details of the fraught question of live television coverage can be found in the files of the Prime Minister's Office and Cabinet and doubtless elsewhere. I love the idea that this guy is in tails and wearing medals, the cameraman. <laughs> Will this happen on the next occasion, I ask? I don't know. Anyway, so details of that can be found in the Prime Minister's Office and Cab. Traffic management and the temporary theft of the Stone of Schoon are, not surprisingly, in the Metropolitan Police files. A huge amount of material is contained amongst the War Office records, especially the arrangements of the, for the vast contingents of overseas troops. Air Ministry files detail Canberra aircraft ferrying film of the coronation across the Big Pond. Colourful commemorative posters can be found in the British Railway and National Savings Committee files. And invitations, an order of service, and sheets of music are all in the records of the Privy Council. The whole event deserves a talk on, it, on its own, but as you can see, I've run out of time. So in conclusion, the records of the last 900 years covering this extraordinary spectacle reflect the ever-growing complexity of government 
and the increased organisation and expenditure required for what was once almost a private ceremony. They also demonstrate the continuity and survival of the coronation ceremony itself, which, like the monarchy, has had to adapt to political, religious and cultural changes. But perhaps more importantly, the unbroken series of coronation records here at Kew provide a constant reminder of what lies at the very core of all the pageantry and pomp that surrounds this ancient ceremony, namely the ritual setting apart of the monarch to serve God and his or her people. My very last word this afternoon, promise, should go, however, to a much more personal account to those that I have described, and sadly one not in the public records. I quote from the diary of an 11-year-old princess who witnessed her father's coronation in 1937. You might be feeling the same by this stage. And this is what she said. At the end, the service got rather boring as it was all prayers. Granny and I were looking to see how many more pages to the end. And we turned one more and then I pointed to the word at the bottom of the page and it said, Finis. We both smiled at each other at each other and turned back to the service. So you can now smile at each other. Finis. Thank you very much. <clears throat> This talk was recorded on the 24th of October 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.